Take your Bibles, let's return back to Luke chapter 6, is where we're going to continue on in our study in the book of Luke, and uh, we're going to be getting to verse 37 uh, in just a moment, and uh, we'll be taking a look at that as we get there. Some popular phrases that you hear very often today, okay, don't, don't answer out loud if you have ever heard these statements, okay? I don't go to church because the church is so judgmental. You ever heard that one? Just a quick comment about that one. What strikes me as funny about that statement is that's usually stated in a very judgmental way. Just saying. The intolerance of tolerance, right? Don't judge me. Who are you to judge? Here's a particular favorite I hear often. You have no right to tell me I'm wrong. Some very interesting statements, aren't they? I was listening to a radio program recently, and the radio talk show host was praising our current culture for their level of tolerance, for their level of being non-judgmental. What was interesting was after this radio host made the statement and praising our culture for not being judgmental, He went on to list clearly defined biblical sins that God says is wrong and praised our culture that now it's okay. But we're not judgmental anymore. In the name of tolerance, in the name of not being judgmental, our culture is spiraling toward anarchy. There is no right and wrong anymore. The problem is the church isn't far behind. You mention the word sin, and we know that those in our culture who do not believe in Christ, they cringe. Woo, don't talk about sin. Unfortunately, increasingly in our churches, you say the S word. Don't judge me. Who are you to judge? Tell me if you've ever heard this phrase before. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. We are losing a clear definition of right and wrong. Think about verses like Leviticus 6. I know we don't live under the Old Testament law. I get that. But listen to these verses. And the Lord spoke to Moses. If a person sins and commits a trespass against the Lord by lying to his neighbor about what was delivered to him for safekeeping or about a pledge or about a robbery or if he extorted from his neighbor or if he found what was lost and lies concerning it and swears falsely, if any of these things that a man may do in his sins... Then it shall be, because he has sinned, he is, uh uh-oh, guilty. That he shall restore what he has stolen. How about Jeremiah 14, 7? O Lord, through our iniquities, testify against us. Do it for your namesake, for our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. Now, might it be that at the root of our demand for tolerance, at our demand for 
You can't judge me at our demand for, I, you can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me how to live. You can't violate my perceived rights. I would, I would encourage you to go to 1 Corinthians, by the way, and look at Paul's view of rights and find out what Paul's perspective about that statement was. But we come at this culture, the reality is this. You know what's really under attack today? The scripture. What's really under attack today is the inerrancy and the authority of scripture. You're right. I'm not your judge. You're right. But God is. And God gave us his word, which is inerrant, not in a particular translation. It's not... It's inspired in its original writings given to us by men, and men have translated it into various... We've got missionaries given her life here today to translating the Bible into a known language in Venezuela. We know it's not inspired in any one, or one particular translation. We get that. But it is God's inspired word that holds authority for all people of all time. The reality behind the statement, when somebody says, don't judge me, and our culture has become tolerant, and the upcoming generation is far less judgmental, might I argue that one of the reasons that we are increasingly tolerant and we are increasingly lacking judgmentalism, which we'll explain in a minute, is because we don't believe the Bible anymore. It's a suggestion It's a good code of morality, maybe, as defined by you or defined by me. But I would argue that Jesus' death on the cross, which we sang a lot about this morning, reveals the seriousness of sin. It was so serious that God sent his own son to die a brutal, humiliating death on the cross, and yet we tolerate it. Our nation tolerates it. Our church even tolerates it. Not our church, but the church in general. That the church is just turning a blind eye. We don't want to talk about sin anymore. We don't want to address those issues because heaven forbid that anybody would ever call us judgmental. How do we address it then? Well, Luke 6. Here's here's the banner verse. You ready? Verse 37. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. See, pastor, it says right there. It says, don't judge. Okay. Keep reading. We'll explain this in a minute, but he says, don't judge. And then a few verses later, guess what he does? He tells us how to judge. So we latch on to, oh, don't judge. You can't judge. Can't judge me. Can't tell me right and wrong. And yet, Jesus says, he does say, don't judge. Well, let's understand this kind of a verse at a time, if you will, a phrase at a time. Notice, he does begin with this statement. He says, don't be, the word really carries the idea of judgmental. Don't judge, and you shall not be judged. The judgment that Jesus is referring to does not refuse or deny the fact that there are times that we engage in appropriate ethical evaluation as demonstrated by other passages in the Scripture. This does not negate the necessity of assessing a person's spiritual condition and confronting sinful behavior. This statement of don't judge does not carry the connotation of overlook sin, ignore it, pretend it doesn't exist, just tolerate it, turn the other cheek, ignore it. That's not what it means. In fact, one of the verses in 1 Corinthians 5 that I find interesting, 
where Paul writes this. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles. He says, there are sexual immorality going on in your church that the Gentiles don't even do. He says, in fact, he goes on, that a man has his father's wife. There's a, a man in a relationship actually with his stepmom, which the law clearly forbids. And you are puffed up, and you have not rather mourned that he has done this deed. In other words, you're not even sorry about it. You're not even, you're not even appalled by it. For I indeed am absent in the body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present uh, with him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with the spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You know what he says, basically? You have this sin that is going on in your church that you're not even concerned about. You're ignoring it. You're not even addressing it. And the reality is, by not addressing it, you're damning this man spiritually. He says, instead, you should hold him accountable, put him into the realm of Satan. Don't pray he goes to hell. That's not what he's saying. Put him outside of the body of Christ, if you have to, so that he will learn to not sin, so that he will be rescued spiritually. Notice Matthew Matthew 18. Moreover, if your brother sins against you and you go tell him his fault between You and him alone, he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let it be done like the heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that... If two of you agree on earth concerning anything that you ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am in their midst of them. One of the most misquoted verses in all of the New Testament, by the way. He's talking about church discipline, that two or three witnesses establish this matter, and where there are two or three people gathered and they're confirming this to be true, he says, I'm in that. Okay, He's not talking about corporate worship. He's not saying, you know, we come together with two or three, gather your name like today, you're here. Jesus is always here. That, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about within this process of church discipline, that as you confront this brother in sin, if he repents, you've regained a brother. If he doesn't hear you, you take two or three witnesses and confront him. If he doesn't hear that, you take it to the church for the purpose of restoring him spiritually. How's, is that judging? Is that a moral evaluation on somebody's life to look at them and say, this person has committed a sin that is public, and therefore the church's responsibility is to come in and to address that issue for the purpose of restoration? So what is Jesus talking about when he says don't judge, when there are clearly places in Scripture where it is commanded and even taught how to be done? Well, here's the point. The idea is against a judgmental spirit that holds another down in guilt and never seeks to correct them and direct them toward God. Jesus is condemning his followers to not have a judgmental spirit. 
Jesus is prohibiting a judgmental spirit that simply reacts with hostility toward those who are in sin. Does that make sense? Luke 18 is a perfect example. Verse 9, And he spake this parable to some who trusted in themselves that were righteous and despised others. You get that? They're righteous in themselves. They despise others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this poor, pitiful tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not as much raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The picture is this. He is not saying that there is not time for moral evaluation. Go back to the Old Testament passage that I gave you from Leviticus. Am I judging somebody when they tell something that is not true? And I say to them, you lied. Am I being judgmental? Or am I speaking the truth in love, judging their actions based on God's word and evaluating that behavior is sinful because you told something that isn't true. By definition, that is a lie. By definition, that is morally unacceptable. The problem is, I would argue, with our younger generation today is they grew up under a president who lied under oath and got nothing for it. It's no big deal. Deflate gate. Some football fans in the room, I hope. What's the issue? You deflated a football .03 PSI? Really? Really? But then you lied about it. Oh, it's just, it's just covering up. It's just an athletic game. It's a, see, lying, whatever. It's just accepted. And you say to somebody, you know what? What you told me is not true. You lied. Don't be judgmental. Who are you? He's not saying don't judge morally. He's saying, what spirit do you approach that? Imagine imagine it this way. Imagine catching somebody in a lie. They tell something that's not true. And you come at it like this. I have never lied in my entire life. I go to church every Sunday, and I give every Sunday. I am righteous before a holy God, and you are a liar, my my friend. You told something that just isn't true. God's going to condemn you to hell. Do you not know how awful you are? That is judgmental. That, That is coming at somebody with a spiritual superiority. Me good, you bad. No, you're a sinner too. And the point is that when I come to judge, number one, I don't judge based on my own standard of behavior. I judge on clearly defined commandments in Scripture, whether I like it or not, whether the culture likes it or not, whether or not the, whoever says it's legal, it's irrelevant. What did God say? And I have the responsibility to say that behavior is sinful. 
but what spirit do I use to communicate that? Let's be honest, church. When the, the culture in which we live says the church is just judgmental, what are, they, what are they mostly responding to? Can I be honest? Our attitude. Our sense of superiority. Our sense is we're right with God and you're just damned to hell and what are you going to do? At least we're in, you're out, we're good. That's wrong. And he goes on and he says, by the way, we don't grow closer to God by standing over people with a judgmental attitude. That doesn't help anybody. He goes on in the next part of verse 37. He says, not only do we avoid a spirit or an attitude of judgmentalism, he says, judge not and you shall not be judged. Condemn not and you shall not be condemned. This next behavior that Jesus clearly tells us to not engage in is to not have a condemning spirit. God will treat us the way we treat others. Now, condemnation here is very similar to the first part of the verse. But this adds an aspect of standing in the place of executioner. So in a sense, judgmentalism is trying you in my court of law, not not God's. I'm trying you by my standard. I'm trying you by my definition of morality. Or I'm trying you with a spirit of arrogance. That's judgmentalism. Then, under condemnation, I am now sentencing you to judgment. And the judgment that I am sentencing you to is death. That's the picture. I am condemning you. I am standing in spiritual superiority. I am standing over you as executioner. The command to be gracious extends from God's graciousness to us. Remember in the previous context we studied now a couple of weeks ago where he talks about loving our enemies and not mistreating them and not treating them in a, in a sinful way. Put that over there for a second, especially if we're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not even enemies. We're on the same team. So it's not standing in condemnation. It is not standing as executioner over another believer We are simply to respond graciously, respond in love, respond with the desire to help that person mature and grow spiritually. One writer said this, he said, without justice and fairness, grace degenerates into permissiveness, just as justice without grace hardens into cruelty. Jesus says, don't condemn others carelessly. He's not saying to ignore sinful behavior. It's not a prohibition against pointing out behavior that is sinful. It is a prohibition against condemning a person and standing as their executioner. Titus 3 says it this way, for we ourselves were all also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Lord, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In other words, when it comes to how I approach someone, I remember who I am before a holy and righteous God. 
because I'm a sinner too. You're a sinner. We've all sinned against God. I cannot come and stand before you in a judgmental spirit and condemning you because by doing so, in a sense, I'm making myself God. He says, no, instead, you have to understand that by grace you are saved. It's not from your works of righteousness. It's not because you have never been any of these things. It is because by God's grace, you now understand the truth and your responsibility is to teach and instruct from a heart of love and honor and grace given to that person. Now he goes on with another one. Next phrase in 30, chapter, or verse 37, he says this. He says, forgive and you shall be forgiven. He talks about having a forgiving attitude. We are to forgive because God has forgiven us. We are to forgive, based on Ephesians 4, 32, because of what God has done for us. And be ye kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ's sake has forgiven you. The believer is forbidden to hold grudges and to develop a bitter spirit against another believer. Here's an interesting thing. Experience that I have seen. People who accuse me or a pastor or anybody of being judgmental, almost all of them have a bitter spirit. I'm not perfect. Be the first one to admit it. Well, what's interesting is the more judgmental we become, the more bitter we become. Jesus says, when I come at a person, I'm not to stand before them with a spirit of judgmentalism. I'm not to stand before them in condemnation. I'm to stand before them with a spirit of forgiveness. Forgiveness, by the way, does not include pretending that a person is innocent when they are guilty. Forgiveness does not erase the consequences of one's sin. Forgiveness does forbid us from permanently holding something against another person. This focuses on interpersonal relationships rather than dealing with the government's responsibility to deal with those who violate God's law, which is what Romans tells us, that God has given to us human authority, local police, Governors, presidents, whatever. They are given the responsibility by God to hold those who violate the laws of our land responsible for their actions. And they have every right given to them by God to hold them accountable for what they have done against society. Believers are not given that responsibility. We are told that while we may have been offended, someone may have sinned against us, it does not mean we simply overlook, ignore the offense because we love them. I would argue you don't love them because you don't have the guts to speak the truth, okay? But the reality is we want to overlook that, don't want to confront it, and then we harbor bitterness and hatred. Jesus says that you, when someone does offend you and you have to approach someone, you are to forgive them. You are to offer them a a, a spirit of forgiveness. Now, we, I've used this illustration before, but it, it's kind of the clearest one that illustrates this point from, from our life. 
number of years ago now, my wife was mugged. Broad daylight, walking down the road, um, walking with Jonathan was like three, four years old. No, not even, two, two and a half. Um, walking down the road, holding Jonathan's hand, nine months pregnant with Jalen, and a man attacks her, throws her to the ground, tries to get her purse. And, you know, those of you who know my wife, she's not going down without a fight. Not going to happen. Didn't get her money, didn't get her purse, but she was pretty banged up. ER ride. I'm, in, I'm on a mission trip, by the way. I'm out of the country when all this happens. The news reporters come, and they ask, what, I, what do you want to see to happen to this guy who, you know, who mugged your wife? I forgive him. I'm not upset with him. Not mad at him. Whatever the court says he should get as a punishment for his crime, that's what he should get. But I have no animosity toward him. Now, sometimes we take the little slights in life. You know, the, the day when you come in and somebody looks at you and they say good morning, and your attitude is, what did he mean by that? <laughs> and we hold all the little the little things that we misread and the little nuances of life, or, or we don't even understand what that person is maybe preoccupied or with him. He ignored me. And we get injured and hurt and wounded over things that are inconsequential. Jesus says that when you come at life and ministry and you come toward relationships with people, you are to offer them a spirit of forgiveness. Defending God's moral standards is something that a believer is commanded to do. What is forbidden is evaluating others with harshness. It is evaluating people with a spirit of condemnation. And it is, it is confronting people with this kind of spirit. I know what you did and I will never forgive you. That's ungodly. You don't know what he did to me. You're right, I don't. But I know this. God said you are commanded as a believer to confront even those who do legitimately sin against you, with a spirit of forgiveness. He says that's how, that's how believers work. That's how they function. We have to forgive, not negating the fact that there are consequences for our actions, not negating the fact that people need to be held accountable, not negating any of that, but approaching them with a spirit of forgiveness. He moves on in verse 38. And he says this, he says, Give and it shall be given unto you, good measure pressed down and shaken together, and running over shall men give into your bosom, for with the same measure that ye meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. He talks here about having a generous spirit. Give and it shall be given to you. God calls his followers to act with a spirit of generosity. He also, at the end of verse 38, he talks about this spirit of being reasonable. You will judge by how you judge. The concept of measure for measure was a common expression of fairness. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago when people say this, well, the God of the Old Testament, as if there's two separate gods, the God of the Old Testament was kind of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth God, but the God of the New Testament is a loving and forgiving God and just you know, happy, long-haired white guy with a long white beard sitting on his rocking chair on the porch and just lets you do whatever you want to do. Those are both erroneous ideas. Absolutely erroneous. First of all, the concept of two different gods is completely foreign to the Scripture. 
But the statement, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, carries the idea of the punishment has to meet the crime. It has to be proportionate to what that person did. I always say it this way. You don't kill a mouse with a hand grenade. You don't, because when we, by the way, when we react to people who sin against us, we always overreact every time. It's never proportionate. So he says, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The picture is, you have to respond with a spirit of fairness. I, I had a boy one time, long time ago. This is off the top of my head. This is when I get myself in trouble usually. Long time ago. He was forbidden to watch television by his dad for one year. You know, true story. You know what his offense was? He wouldn't use mashed potatoes at dinner. True story. Probably overkill, I would say. And yet, isn't that how we live sometimes? Jesus said, look at this picture, by the way. He says, it shall be given you good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Let me, let me read you something, what that means. This comes from Daryl Bach. He says this, the measuring of the corn is a process which is carried out according to an established pattern. The seller crouches on the ground with the measure between his legs. First of all, he fills the measure three-quarters full and gives it a good shake with a rotary motion to make the grain settle down. Then he fills the measure to the top and gives it another shake. Next, he presses the corn down strongly with both hands. Finally, he heaps it into a cone, tapping it carefully to press the grains together. From time to time, he would bore a hole into the corn and pours a few more grains into it until there is literally no room for a single grain. In this way, the purchaser is guaranteed an absolutely full measure. It cannot hold any more. The three passive participles in this verb present an image for a container filled with grain, and it refers to what God will repay. He's calling us here not to ignore sin, not to tolerate sin, but not to come at it with a spirit of judgmentalism, not to come at it with a spirit of condemnation, not coming at it with an unforgiving spirit coming at it graciously, understanding the grace that we have received, understanding that when it comes to God's grace in our lives, we have gotten a full measure of that grace. It has been shaken down. It has been pressed down. It has been given to us in absolute abundance. And Jesus says we have to understand that that is how we judge one another with a spirit of understanding God's grace for us. Now, we are amazingly out of time. So we won't get to the second half of this message this morning, but I can't leave you here. Because you said, Pastor, you told us to judge, but he didn't say anything about that. Well, he gives several illustrations, which we'll get to next week, but notice notice verse 41. And why beholdest thou the mote in thy brother's eyes, but perceivest not the beam that is in your own eye? The picture, the word mote, it's a speck. 
It's a flake of sawdust is the picture in somebody's eye. And he says, why are you after the flake, the sawdust, piece of wood in somebody else's eye when you have a telephone pole sticking out of yours? That's the picture. It's hyperbole. He's making an overstatement to show us how ridiculous this is. But notice verse 42. Either how canst thou say, thy brother, brother, let me pull out the moat from thine eye when thou... When, when thou thyself beholdest not the beam in thine own eye, thou hypocrite, cast out first the beam out of your eye, then you shall see clearly to pull the moat out of his brother, out of your brother's eye. He doesn't say, look, you have a telephone pole in your eye, he has a speck of dust in his eye, just ignore both of them. It's not what he says. Nor does he say, you have the telephone pole in your eye, take it out, but ignore the speck. He says, no, you clean up your life, not not in your own strength, but you repent of your sin and understand who you are before God. Get yourself in a place where you are humble and righteous and ready to go and assist this brother to get the speck out of their eye. That is fair judgment. Not for the sake of condemnation, but for the sake of rescuing them from hell. And yet, in our sake of, I don't want to be judgmental, you have no right to tell me what to do, there are people in our day living in blatant sin, and we step back and say, who am I? You're wrong too. And you don't come at it with a superiority complex that I am God's gift to humanity to come and to rescue thou from the speck that liveth in thy eye. Come on, man! You repent of your sin for the purpose of in great humility helping a brother to rescue them from sin. And if you refuse to do that, you don't love anybody but you! And we, we don't tell people about Christ because they might laugh, they might judge us, they might think we're weird, so we're just okay to let them go to hell. How loving is that? That brother is caught in that sin, and if he continues down that path, he's going to ruin his life. Who am I? I'm not touching that. Who do you love? Them? Or you? You ever been hated for speaking the truth? Wish I had a dollar for it. No, I'm kidding. I have. And it's not, it's not a license to mistreat people. It is not a license to stand over them and condemn them. It is not a license to be mean. It is a license to come before that person and say, I love you enough to risk my reputation, to risk you liking me, whatever, for me to say to you, friend, if you keep going in the direction you're going to go, you're going to destroy your life. You're going to destroy your testimony. You're going to destroy your family. You are heading down a path 
that God said, not me, God said is sin. And I am coming before you to say, I'm no better. I'm a sinner too. But by God's grace, I'm not caught in that sin. And let me help you be restored to right fellowship with God and others. That's the spirit that Jesus is talking about. The problem is, at times, we speak the truth not in love. We speak it harshly. We speak it with a spirit of condemnation. Jesus says, actually, the passage that maybe illustrates it the the most clearly is found in Galatians chapter 6, where Paul tells us that we are to bear one another's burdens. That if a man be overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's what we're called to do. So am I to judge? No, but yes. Yes, but no. I am to judge based on God's clearly defined moral standard. And I am to judge with a spirit of meekness and in a spirit of humility for the purpose of spiritual restoration and for the purpose of rescuing a brother or sister from destruction. That's biblical love. Let's pray.